Nothing beats our stories. Welcome to the campfire. Join me, Ben Zoldan, and my guests as we explore all kinds of topics. This platform exists to inspire human spirit. Period, that's it. Nothing's off limits and you're gonna hear from everybody. Thought leaders and non-thought leaders, CEOs and non-CEOs, authors and non-authors. What you're gonna really hear is conversations that matter, that get to the heart of the human condition and stories that inspire. My sales idol is a part-time bookkeeper in Decatur, Georgia. And I'll never forget this, it's a Saturday morning. I just came back from like a week of travels. I'm sitting on my living room, like with my feet up, turn on CNN, and they air the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. It's August 20th, 2013, and there's a school, the Robert McNair Discovery Center, which is a public elementary school in Decatur, Georgia, just a suburb outside of Atlanta. And the day starts like every other day until Michael Hill, who's a 21-year-old with a history of mental illness, walks onto this elementary school campus with an AK-47 and 500 rounds strapped to his body. Have you ever heard this story? And Antoinette Tuff, a bookkeeper, who's in the front administration office, calls 911. Literally, the entire thing is recorded and CNN is airing this thing on a Saturday morning. It's the most incredible thing you've ever heard in your life. And this is what happens, as you can imagine, the call goes like this, 911, what's your emergency? And you actually hear in the background gunshots, pop, 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 at this elementary school. And Antoinette Tuff goes, um, you know, I'm at the school, there's a shooter outside, and he says he's gonna kill everybody. You know, what should I do? And it's like the most surreal thing, because her tone of voice is kind of like this, because she's kind of whispering, right? But you can hear the terror in it. And the 911 operator goes like this, ma'am, can you get to somewhere safe? And she goes, I think I can. She puts the phone down, doesn't hang up, so it's still recording, goes out, you hear gunshots. She comes back on, picks up the phone and goes, I can't get out right now. I think he's coming in. And the most chilling, frightening thing happens. The gunman is now face to face with Antoinette Tuff while she's on the phone with 911. And he starts barking orders at her. And she's trying to like kind of respond like, okay, let me do this for you, let me do that for you. And it's going back and forth. And she's not like, like, animated, you don't even actually, she's not like panicking, she's just kind of responding to the guy's orders, but she's kind of being agreeable. He goes out, sh you, know, you hear gunshots, you don't know what's going on, comes back again, and literally within like five or six minutes, the most amazing thing comes over Antoinette Tuff when she starts to relate to this gunman in the most beautiful, compassionate way, and she literally says this, I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know what it's like, like when I don't, feel, you know, there's any way out. My husband just left me after 33 years. And she opens up and tells him that. And it's so amazing as she opens up and says that. But what's even more amazing is you actually hear in the background the gunman open up right afterwards. So he kind of goes. And everything in that room you can feel just changes. And she's not poking or prodding or trying to do anything. She just opens up and reveals herself. Then she says, I also have a kid who has multiple disabilities and she opens up a little more. And then you hear him open up a little bit more. And he actually says to her, you can hear this, he goes, I've been off my meds and I have a history, I have mental illness. And she starts to use language like baby and honey. And at one point he literally says, everybody's gonna die today. He has an AK-47. And then he goes like this, maybe I should just kill myself right now. And she says, you know something, when my husband left me, 
I wanted to kill myself too, but I didn't. And I'm here, I'm standing right now, and I love you. And he tells her to get on the school's intercom and apologize on her behalf. Literally, she gets on the school's intercom outward and says, you know, he wants to apologize. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. Then he tells her that, that she could tell the 911 operator, you know, that he's going to lie down on the ground, put, the, put his gun away, and they could come and arrest him. And she kind of gives some instructions back and forth with the 911 operator. And then she's like, okay, he's ready now. He's lying down. You could come arrest him. You hear like the SWAT teams like totally bum rush this guy. Like you hear the commotion. You hear Antoinette's voice. But the most amazing thing at this, right, when, when they come and arrest Michael Hill, is you can actually almost hear her for an instant protecting the guy. Saying like, no, 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 don't hurt him. Don't hurt him. Like she actually had love for this guy. And I think about that a lot. I remember that Saturday morning listening to that going, that's everything that we talk about in Story Leaders. That shines a light on every like natural law that I know to be true, every value that we all talk about, empathy, compassion, love. I'm telling that story to somebody actually in one of my workshops, and here's where I missed it. I told that story because I was like, that's everything we talk about. You open up, somebody will open up. And I remember saying this to somebody. This is how much of a knucklehead I am. I'm going... If that woman, Antoinette Tuff, could get a gunman to put down his guns, we could sell a little bit more of our wares. And I couldn't have been more wrong. And I remember there was somebody I was telling this story to stopped me and said, Ben, time out. You got it wrong. And I'm like, what? That's not the point. I've heard that 911 recording. And the thing I got out of that was this. That was a woman who you could tell wasn't trying to get the guy to put down his gun but she was gonna be with him no matter what. She was almost gonna jump off that cliff with him. And I think about this, especially this idea that we're gonna tell our stories to sell or do something to get to an outcome. I think it's about something so much deeper than that. Now more than ever, people have their guards up, they have their weapons drawn and, uh, and we're disconnected. So I couldn't be more thrilled to shine a light on how we can help everybody just you know, disarm. So with that, um, you guys welcome Antoinette Tuff. Antoinette, how are you? I am awesome. <laughs> yeah. You know what's interesting? I, I, was, I, was watching, uh, I was watching the news this morning and I was, I, was, I was watching the horrific scenes in New York City and they, were, they had some cameras in a couple of the hospitals and, and they were interviewing some of the doctors and nurses. And I was like, man, these people are, are heroes. I felt so like almost helpless sitting here at my, you know, being locked, shut down here in LA. Like, what can I do? I'm not out there. Um, when you hear that, like when you, when you watch that and you see these people that are heroes, what comes up for you? I mean, we all come together and when it seems to be overwhelming and tragedy, and a lot of times you don't know what's down on the inside of you until it happens. And that's something that I learned actually on August 20th, 2013. But what comes to mind to me when I see it is to instantly go into prayer. Because you know that they're on the front line and no matter what, lives are going to be taken. No matter what, innocent lives are going to be gone too soon. And there's nothing you can really do about it. And so in the midst of it, you can't service everybody, even though your heart bleeds to see that the person next to you, you know, you won't be able to save. Yeah. 
Well, I guess we're all, I mean, this adversity, some of us feel it, um, I don't know, it's so painful. I have to sometimes turn off the news in the last few days because my mind and my heart just go poof. But, um, and when I think about the heroes, um, you know, that are like on the front lines today, does that, does it seem weird to you when people call you a hero? Well, it seems weird because I, I mean, I, I, I'm not a hero. I mean, I was just at that time looking at a young man who was 20 years old, younger than my kids, crying out for help. And so we do what we need to do in the midst of trying. You know, you don't go over and say that, I'm gonna save this person today, or you don't go over and think that you're gonna be faced with an AK-47. Nobody knew that coronavirus was coming to our homes and to our neighborhoods and to our friends and family. What we do is we do the best that we can with what we have at the moment. And sometimes what that looks like works and sometimes it doesn't. All right, well, let's dig in because I feel like some of us can watch things happen in the world and, and they look like they're these esoteric things um, because they're just far reaching or they're just like, that. the enormity of, I, of something or somebody doing something heroic seems like, you know, I often feel like for me, like, how do I channel that? And, uh, and so I wanna I want to talk about this. I don't know if everybody knows who you are, um, and I want to ask you about that incident. So um, about eight months after Sandy Hook school shooting, young man with the AK-47 and about 20 rounds of what we thought was rounds of ammo. I thought it was 20, right? <laughs> it was 500. He had him in his book bag, but he was only 20 years old. So when you come back and you see this kid standing in front of you, you don't ever think that you're in danger. You don't ever think that right now that your life could end, even though he's walking with his AK-47 fully loaded, allowing me and the teacher that was in the office with me that we were all going to die. We had just seen innocent lives taken eight months before that. And so you're hoping that this is not gonna be you but you don't know if it's going to be you because he's walking to and fro in the front office with his AK-47, allowing us to know that we're going to die. And so when you're actually thrust into an actual situation and you don't know how you're going to come out of it, then you got to go back and say, can I survive this? So what does this look like? Or how do I survive it? And sometimes you don't always have time to digest it. It goes back to this Cobra. We didn't have time to digest it. It was one day we were all working, going about our everyday lives, going to the beauty supply place, getting our, you know, getting our hair done, the salons and all that, the barbershops and you know, nails done sitting in the salons. And the day we can't even go get our toes done. <laughs> so it's, you know, so it hits you like that. It's the unknown in our lives. Well, so that's what we have to always look at and see. How do you deal with that? Right. But from what I understand, you weren't even supposed to be in the front office that day. No, I was actually the bookkeeper. Um, I was actually relieving the secretary for lunch. And so what happened was, and how many of you are, and, and I know some of your audience can be able to contest this, when we go to take our kids to school, right? We go take our kids to school and somebody comes behind us, another parent, and you just kindly hold the door open for the parent. Not knowing that, is that parent armed with an AK-47? Is this parent a safe zone? And so that's what happened and how the gunman actually got into the school. Another parent held the door open for the gunman to come into the school. So the next time y'all go to school, don't you hold that door open. <laughs> don't do it. 
uh oh, you're from the South. You practice hospitality. You always correct me when I'm when I misbehave. I don't know about that, but 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 it's but I but from what I remember, you know, just before that, you had heard you had received like your own, you know, bad news or in that moment. Well, I had gotten a phone call from the bank wanting fourteen thousand dollars in seven days, um, but I don't think they got the memo that my husband had just left me after thirty three years. The man that I had been with. Since I was 13 years old, I was 46 at the time. And so already in a downward spiral myself, I had tried to commit suicide two days before that. It wasn't my first time, but it was my last. And if I had it to do all over again, I would do it again because it helped me save over 870 innocent children, staff and parents on that day. Yeah. Can I ask you why, what, what was going on a couple days before? Well, I was trying to actually try to figure out how to survive without my ex-husband. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know how to live without the man that I had been with all my life. So it was like, okay, how do you come back and say, it's all right to be by yourself? I had never been by myself. I had never slept by myself. Y'all, I didn't even have a Georgia Power electric bill in my name. <laughs> Everything was tied up to Mr. and Mrs. Tough. And so when you're in that position, then it allows you to be able to try to figure out how do I survive? And so for me, it wasn't good because I just didn't know how. I didn't love myself at that time. But I can sure tell you I love me today. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Why do you say that? Why do I say I love me today? Because what I had to do, Ben, and one of the things that I teach when I do my presentations, um, is that I had to introduce me to me. I had to say, Antoinette, meet Antoinette. I had to look in the mirror and introduce myself to myself because I didn't know who I was. But how many of us that are spouses on here and you go into a marriage, whether female or male, and you soak up the relationship in the marriage and in the process of it all, because you're trying to become one, you forget who you are because you are two separate people becoming now united as one person. But how many of us, one goes over, one does more than the other. And so what happens is there's no equal so that you can balance out to know that you're two separate people. And so the person that's going more than the other one, they wind up putting 90% where the other one may put 10% more. And so you're trying to figure out in the process, who am I? And so for me, that's what I did. I put more into my marriage. I remember giving an example of why I said it so you can understand. I remember through all this, one of my friends asked me when me and my ex-husband first separated, they said, uh, Antoinette, what you like to do? And I was like, mm, that's a good question. And I couldn't answer it. And then they came back and they said, well, what does, and they named my ex-husband and they said, what does he like to do? And I was like, oh, you know, he like to do that, 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 that. I had this long list. And then they named both of my kids, and they was like, well, what do they like to do? I was like, oh, yeah, they like to do that, 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 that. So I had this long list. And then they said to me, then do you see what the problem is? And I still didn't get it. I was like, what? And they was like, you can tell me what everybody in your house like to do, but you can't even tell me if you like seafood or not. Now I can tell you what I like to do. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I wonder how the, um, the incident changed. It, changed you to come into your own i don't know i think about where i'm at in my life and and this everything that's going on in the world right now is is 
you know, people talk about it being like a, a reset for humanity. Like maybe it'll be a reset. I'm, I've been thinking about it for me. Like, all right, I'm halfway through this journey. I want the second half to be different. Here's what I want to do in the second half. But one of the struggles for me was always, um, I think you said loving yourself. That's a tough one. Mm -hmm. And the process of it all. Because like now, how many people are sitting at home with a spouse, right? This, let's, let's take marriage, for instance. How many people are sitting at home in a marriage and before all this happened, you may have said to yourself, I am getting out of it. But because Corona came, you are now stuck in it as you feel, right? And so how do you deal with the process of it all? And a lot of times what we can't deal with is the unknown in our lives. Like I can deal with, I know that tomorrow's going to rain. But I can't deal with the no. Am I going to still love you the same way I did today when yesterday you just told me that you no longer want me? So it's the unknowns in our lives that take us down the spiral of trying to figure it out. And it was what took me down the spiral of, you know, wanting to commit suicide. Can I make it? Can I do it? Those things are the things that allow you to be able to see is life worth living for. Yeah. Well, take that back to that, to being in the front office in that school that day. Like I've heard the entire 911 recording and I've heard like you, I could hear gunshots going back and forth between the cops outside and, and Michael Hill from inside. Right. Like there's gun, there's gunfire going back and forth in that moment. Mm -hmm. I'm like, how do you, how can you look at him in that instant as just a young troubled man versus someone who's trying to you know, do what he went in there to do? Well, first of all, it's the compassion. So one of the things that I teach in my presentation is called tough tactics. And tough tactics stand for compassion, confidence, and control. And so what I had to do in that moment with Michael Hill was to be able to have compassion, to not look at the AK-47, not look at the 500 rounds of ammo that he had, not look at what I seen he was doing, now, even when he said to me, I hadn't taken my medicine, I'm not mentally stable, I couldn't look at those things. What I had to look at was, this was a 20-year-old young man crying out for help, and can I help him in the process? And not only allow me to go home, but allow all of us to go home today. So that's yeah. what's important for me. Yeah, what well, sounded like that happened like halfway through that experience, as I listened to it, it was almost like a, sh like a, like a, I don't know, like something shifted like 10 minutes into that. And it was almost like when I started to hear you relate your own struggles, your adversities, your own adversities, your things you went through, it was as if like everything changed in that room. And I got it. So I got to, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but after that, like I was on, after I heard it, I was on a crusade to, to tell your story to the world. Like I look at the way we deal with corporate America and it just feels like like we're all holding guns up to each other. Like we all have our guards up and we're just on, it, it just feels that way, at least in the, I don't know, it's more than the workplace. Like we all have our guards up. And I was telling your story one day to somebody, I was like, you gotta check this out. So that's what I was doing for the three or four years before I met you. And I played the audio recording for a friend. And I had talked about how through that experience, you got him to put his gun down. Because that's how I originally made sense of it, okay? Mm -hmm. 
And my friend said to me, you, you, you got, you're missing the point, Ben. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, I'm the one telling you the story. And she goes, you're missing the point. It wasn't that she got him to put the gun down. And she said, if you really listen closely at the very end of the recording and you know, the, the police come and arrest him, there's a point in your voice, like the tone of your voice where you're almost like saying, don't hurt him. There's, a, there's an aspect of even protecting him in that instant. And when I, for some reason, that totally changed my perspective of like what's possible. And I'm wondering, did my friend have it right? Is it, did you feel that at that moment? Well, first of all, Ben, the thing about it for me is how do I create a psychological safe environment within this school? How do I come out and allow the kids to go home safe and not allow the gunman to know that while I'm talking to him, that they're going home? But how does he feel like his words and what he's about to say to me matters? And those are the things that we don't always do in corporate environments. We don't always make it to be a psychological safe environment, whether we do it here virtually or whether we do it in the workplace. How many times do we as owners, CEOs, managers, supervisors, allow our employees to know that your voice matters, that whatever you're going through, I, I, I appreciate your good, your bad, the uglies, the crazies, the all of that that goes on in the workplace, that I hear you and I see you. So what helped me with the gunman was because all of the crazies, all of the da 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 da, -da he was going to da, da da you know, all of that that was going on in the room, I allowed him to be able to know that his voice mattered. And so in that, how many times do we come in and see our employees because we know them and we have built a relationship with them and we've connected with them to be able to say, Mm, something ain't right with Antoinette today. That's not her normal. But what we do is we're so busy going into our little spaces, our little corner, and we forget to be able to ask Antoinette, how are you feeling today? And sometimes just the mere fact that you ask can be able to be the difference between life and death for somebody. So for me that day, I allowed the gunman to have a psychological safe environment, but I also allowed him to be authentic to who he was to be able to allow me to know that he could be okay and in that safety. Yeah. What do you mean authentic? Well, being able to say that he hadn't taken his medicine. He should have went to the hospital. You know, as he's going to and fro, he, he, he actually shot the gun in the room with me twice. Then he went back in the community and started shooting. And no one at the school at that time knew that I was going through a divorce. They didn't know what was going on because they never asked. They didn't know that I had tried to commit suicide um, several times. There was two teachers at the school at that time that knew exactly what I was going through. Out of over 50 staff members there, no one actually took the time to know that I was falling apart on the inside. And so the only difference between me and the gunman was he had a gun physically, I had a gun internally because I was trying to kill myself. So there's this, it's the same thing. Then we were pain meeting pain that day. 
wow, so what happens if you're not there? What happens if you're not going through? Now, I think about this all the time. I think about this as a parent, like, you know, the, the things I went through, how they shape me, you know, when I think about adversity or just any of the traumas that I've been through, and then I try to protect my girls from any kind of adversity or trauma. And the only thing that's coming up for me is like, if you weren't there to go first with Michael Hill, he would have never been seen. He would have never been seen. But so for me, what I did is I went back into that school district and launched my own um, nonprofit organization. It's called Kids on the Move for Success, right? Yeah. But I also went back there and those two teachers that are now principals and assistant principals, um, I went back to their school and I wanted to give back to them because they gave back to me and helped save my life several times. But I also wanted to go back to that school district to be able to help other youth because now, how do I go back and not just allow that one day to be a day? How do I go back and allow multiple days every day to be able to support youth and be able to change their lives so that they don't become the next Michael Hill? And so one of the things that I do when I'm on the stage, I help adults. I allow them to be able to see in our interaction, like, how can you T-tag? Like, okay, Antoinette, what's T-tag? So T-tag is tough tactics, action, game plan. The only thing I did that day was had a game plan. I just didn't know that I had one. But how many of us, if we know that we have a game plan and we can figure it out before we have to get into trauma or before a crisis come into our life, and then we can be able to act out that game plan, it now takes out the unknown in our lives and help us to be in a comfortable place for ourselves. Well, as you're talking about that, I. I was thinking, I was watching this interview last night with, you know, who uh, you guys know who Malala is. She won the Nobel Peace Prize in like 2014. I think when she was 14, she the, you know, she was in Afghani. She, she lived in Afghanistan and the Taliban um, tried to murder her. And she was shot, you know, through her head into like all the way. And, uh, and she survived and she went on a crusade to speak out against the Taliban. She won the Nobel Peace Prize when she was like, 16 years old in 2015 and I was listening to an interview with her and she described what actually happened. And I think this is kind of what I'm trying to, I don't know, I don't know if understand or try to bottle. She said, um, you know, the, the person who shot me was actually another teenager and he was a kid struggling too. Mm -hmm. I was like, how many of us, I know from like how many of us, like what if we got to a place that we could see people that way, like what the workplace would look like, what the non-workplace would look like. It would just be so much different. And it's so simple, but it, yet it ain't easy that she looked that him is just another kid, the person who shot her, as a kid who is struggling. Yeah, but you know the thing about it, the reason why she could do that though, Ben, is because she didn't judge him. One of the things that I talk about in my Tough Tactics is use judgment without passing judgment. But how many times have most of us before all this um, COVID came up, right? How many times have we looked at somebody without them ever saying the word, you look at them from the head to the toe and you have already prejudged them and already got in your mind of who they are. 
And that's what we do a lot of times is we judge people without even knowing them, right? And so that young lady was able to see that, first of all, he was a human being. And second of all, he was calling out help, just like Mike the gummy that helped me hostage. And I'm going to call him by his name because his name is Michael Hill. He is somebody. And so with that, Michael Hill was able to come back. He passed several schools before he got to my school. He parked his car right next to my car. And if I had gotten to the front office at the time that I was supposed to get there, I would have missed him. And he would have encountered the actual secretary who had just started two days before that. But oh, I'm telling you, I don't know who all you all's high being is, but I'm telling you, there's always timing in the process of what we go through in our lives. And you may not understand it at the moment, but if you stay quiet, if you listen, if you're obedient in it all, it's going to always work out for your good. Well, I know about your, your faith, and I'm actually, as I'm, as I'm listening to that, I'm reading a question here that Brent, Brent asks, um, the workplace never seems, quote unquote, safe. And he goes on to say, safe to talk about your God. And he asks, does the experience that you went through, has that changed how you talk about God, and I'm not just going to expand that, or anything in the workplace. Well, the thing for me is that most people that bring me on know about my faith in God, right? But what I've learned to do is, is that because my light's going to shine when I get there, wherever I ever mention God's name, you're going to always know that there is one. I mean, give you an example of this. I remember going to speak at an um, actual safety conference. And so I'm at the conference and this young lady comes up and um, I'm talking about my story. I never mentioned God. I'm telling her about my story. I'm talking about my marriage and my divorce. I'm talking about my suicide attempts. And we're in this room of over, over 900 people. And so it's uh, Madame males and not that many females. And so she, she comes up to me. And uh, one of the things that I do in my, and talk about in my talk is that and what I used to do with my kids is called laying your bosom. And so they would lay in my bosom. So like when they was having a bad day or something was going on, they knew that laying in my bosom was their safe place, right? And so no matter what was going on, they could lay in my bosom and get it all out. So this lady in front of over 900 people, majority males in the room, came up and said to me, I know you believe in God. I need to just lay in your bosom because you just told my story. She said, I am now going through a divorce. Nobody knows it. And I just thought about committing suicide this morning because it was so overwhelming. But I heard God tell me to come in your conference. And even though you don't say it in your talk, I know you know him. And can I lay in your bosom? Because I just want to cry. But I'm too afraid. So you know what I said to her? I said, forget all these 900 people in this room, baby. And you lay in my bosom and get it all out. And she did. She laid in my bosom in front of all these people and she just cried and cried and cried. And so you can imagine all these men and everybody looking like, okay. And all these ladies that was in the audience like, what is she doing to this lady? <laughs> she laid there, she just cried. And then when she finished, I just let her lay there. And I'm just talking to every else, everybody else around like she was not laying in my bosom just crying. Because I'm talking to her while they're talking and nobody knows that she's crying, right? Yeah. And she gets up and she's like, 
oh my God, I feel so much better. And she said, you just don't know what that did to me. And so those are kind of some of the kind of experience that we experience when, we, when I do my um, presentations and my talk is because at the end of the day, if I can change one person's life, they may not ever hear me say it, but the light that comes in when I walk in the room, then I've done what I needed to do. So interesting. It got me thinking when I, uh, <laughs> about 12 years ago, um, I started Story Leaders as like a total accidental personal research project. I just wasn't into the thing I was doing. I took off. I had enough money to maybe last me like a year, year and a half. So I figured I had this runway and I was, um, I, I uh, started this research project with a, a mentor of mine and I live in LA. He lives in San Diego and I used to drive to San Diego like twice a week and I had this like seven or eight year old um, Land Rover Discovery. So it was off warranty and that thing would break down all the time, but it's all I had. And I started to you know, tighten down the screws, you know, financially, because I was basically taking a sabbatical to start this research project. And I'd, I'd drive down to San Diego like twice a week and the car started to break down. One day it broke down and I was in the middle, uh, I was like in North San Diego County and there's a, there's a part of the off ramp next to um, the, the Marine base where there's no, there, next there's no off ramp for like five or six miles and my car breaks down at like 10 at night and I, I remember um the car breaks down I've it's about a year into this project for me so I'm running out of dough and I'm thinking man and I you know kind of like why is this thing happening to me and I was just so angry and then I had no money so I called AAA I had this person this person come with this with this tow truck and he told me, well, if he, if he tows the car, you know, I'd figure out a way to get back to LA, like two hours away. And then if, if I leave it with him, it's gonna be like at least a thousand bucks, let alone the cost of fixing it. So I was like, dude, I can't leave you. I can't leave my car here. It'll, it's too much money, I don't have enough money. Like I had no money at the time. And I was like, I, I needed to get that car to LA because if I got it to LA, it would at least sit in my driveway. I didn't have to worry about fixing it at the time. Right? So I, I was like, I need to get this car to LA. And he's like, listen, how much money do you have? I'm like, I don't know, I have like 300 bucks. He goes, give me the 300 bucks. I'm gonna put your car on my flatbed and I'm gonna drive it to LA for you for 300 bucks. And I'm guessing the gas alone is probably a hundred bucks, maybe more. And I'm sitting there and this guy is just riding shotgun in this beat up old tow truck. And I start telling him what, what I'm going through and he opens up to me. I'll never forget that ride home. He opens up to me and shares how he had lost a child to a motorcycle accident who was like 12 years old and he starts to open up and share and he was this like really big guy just tow truck driver guy and he opened up and started to cry and share the story and he lost a son in an accident with him the two of them were riding like dirt bikes in the desert and had a, he had an accident next to him and he had shared and cried and shared and cried. And I think about that ride home and what you got me thinking about, because I, you know that my faith is different than yours. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's not, you know, going back to that question, it's like, why are we here sometimes? Why are we in the place? And I was like, I was supposed to be in that place at that time with my struggles mm -hmm. and him sharing who he was I was imagining that he probably, I could tell by the way he let it out, that he never was like able to share that. I bet you he would have given me a $300 back because that ride to him 
meant everything. So I don't know, I guess what I was thinking was we're meant to be some places, especially when we're having adversity, because it's like sometimes we think we're the only ones going through some kind of adversity. Yeah, the thing about it has been, I know for me, uh, when my ex-husband left me, um, I thought I was the only one who tried to commit suicide. I thought I was the only one that had a marriage that was ending after 33 years. I thought I was the only one that was the only one. And then when I got into it and started um, allowing God to heal me in the process of it and putting him first in me second, that was when I realized that how many other people was in the struggle and the struggle was real. And I also think that God allowed me to be single because I never understood the single life. I had, you know, had been with my ex-husband since I was 13 years old. So I went from my mom to him. So I didn't understand what that life was like. And now that I'm in it now, I'm like, oh my goodness, the struggle is real. Yeah. I think it'd be good at just, you know, coming off that, Pete Chorus has a question. So this gets to what Brent, Brent was asking before in the corporate environment and what you said, everybody's always at each other's throats and there's some difficulty with that and understanding the, you know, the idea of going first and it definitely sounded like you did that, Antoinette, is do you ever need to ask permission to go first or is that just the way you should live your life, including the corporate environment? Well, one thing I would say to you, Pete, it, it depends upon who your um, your CEO and, 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 what, and what the actual rules and regulations, because sometimes when you're working for someone else and go first, then they could take it as you're trying to step on their toes. <laughs> so I would say, first of all, make sure that you're not in that kind of environment when you're looking like you want to go first, right? But then on the other hand, I read is, is that how do I then, if I feel uncomfortable about going first, how do I be authentic in who I am, right? But then also allow my boss to know that I got ideas and, you know, it's, this is a psychological safe environment for me to be able to share. And so I would make sure that first of all, that you're in that place to be able to share. But sometimes in sharing, if it's not one, then it could be more harmful for you than a pleasure. Yeah. Know what, I, know what I wonder about, and, and Pete, I'm wondering what, what your take is on this one. Think about the relationship between like trust and vulnerability, right? Like, I know for me, what I used to believe was I needed to have trust to be vulnerable. And then I'm wondering like, whoa, maybe I had it backwards all these years. And maybe through my own vulnerabilities, I could work to, to build trust. Um, and the way I'm, I started to make sense of it was like a ladder. Like if I could go first, going first to me is just, you know, taking a step in. Um, um, I mean, Antoinette, like I think a, a lot about that when I hear you say, um, my husband left me after 33 years. Um, I wanted to commit suicide. Like I heard that on, on the 911 recording, um, but I never heard you ask for permission. I heard you just being authentic in the moment almost. It's like, What's that, um, the way the Dalai Lama describes the difference between empathy and compassion, which I think is a really, really big one right now. He describes empathy, I'm using this as an example. Imagine being on a trail, you're on a hike, and on the trail, you see somebody on the ground in front of you, and 
they're lying there in a lot of pain because they have a big stone on their chest. A stone fell and fell and landed on their chest and they're having a hard time breathing. You look at that person and you feel their pain. Mm -hmm. That's empathy to feel what another person feels, right? Compassion is to have that empathy first, but then to have the wherewithal to take the, the rock, the stone off the person's chest. And like, and I think about that, the difference between empathy and compassion Empathy is to be able to see somebody and feel what they're feeling, but it's so easy to look away. And I think like sometimes going first to me and, and Pete, uh, tell me your take and Antoinette, like I feel like not looking away is going first, looking at somebody and going, whoa, that person's struggling. Whether it's Malala, that person who shot me is going through a struggle. Michael Hill, who's a 20 year old with 500 rounds in AK-47 shooting at me, and about to murder kids. Look, if we're all honest right now, we would use words, we, we wouldn't use words like compassion. We, most people would use words like monster, mm -hmm. kill him. And I feel like maybe going first is an aspect of, can we look at somebody and, and like, look, I'm no moral authority on this one because there's some people right now that are keeping me up at night. And it's hard and maybe the biggest thing that like, what if we can all get out of this? Is if going first is, can we actually look at people in the eyes and go, well, that, that person is struggling too, especially now. Let me ask you this, Pete. When you say go first, tell me in what perspective are you talking about going first? Well, I mean, with vulnerability, I mean, I, I, I've never gone first just because I have maybe grown up in an, an emotionally devoid environment, right? And that, those types of places are, are you, you have to lead with trust. And it's kind of like the chicken, the egg and two magnets. Like if two people are waiting to be trusting of each other, I think you have to lead with vulnerability. My question in my company, I mean, absolutely displays the top down, right? Compassion. And uh, I feel comfortable at my company, but going first and I'm beginning to beginning to because we just had this workshop back in February but for me going leading first with vulnerabilities unnatural and externally other people I haven't met before my question was more meant do I have to ask permission or just always live your life vulnerable well for me um, I have always lived my my life vulnerable um you you get who you get it's just me. I don't come in the room trying to be this big celebrity, trying to be this, you know, this person of I'm way up here and you're way down here. Ben will tell you, when I met Ben, it was like, give me a hug, baby. How you doing? You know, <laughs> you just get me. Um, I've had some people say that, um, Antoinette, you just think everybody's your friend or when you go into the room, you just, you know, you just gravitate to everybody. But to me, I see no stranger. I don't care if you have $2 or if you have $2 million. Nobody is, 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 is different. Everybody is the same. But I, I live my life like that. My nonprofit, I service homeless and foster kids and kids that live in at-risk communities. Then my um, for-profit, where I do my speaking, my movie, and my book out of, I know people that make millions that could pay for everybody in my nonprofit um, bills. But do I treat them differently? No. So I would say to you is be authentic in who you are. 
be peeped. So when people come in the room, they'll be able to say, wow, he made an impact. His light shined when I seen him. And so when you do that, it's not about going first, going second, or going last. What it will be is that your light will so shine that people will be able to know you got to meet him. Man, that beard and them glasses right there sure said something when I seen him when he walked in that door, that handsomeness. They gonna, they gonna talk you down so they might even remember your name. Did you see what he had on the day? Girl, he sure walked the room. Now you might get a little bit more uh, attention than you wanted, but you gonna get some. <laughs> so don't look at if I'm first or if I'm second or where do I go, just be you. Just be you and whoever it's for is going to gravitate to you and whoever's not supposed to get it won't and know that everybody's not going to love you everybody's not going to accept you i don't expect everybody to accept and love me but what i do know is this and one thing i've learned through it all is not about being first or last i know what my assignment is i know what my destiny is and i know what my purpose is and that is this every day when i get up no matter what i do I know I'm going to change somebody's life and I'm going to have saved somebody's soul. And I don't ask God, how do I do it, what I'm going to do? Because since August 20th, 2013, I have worked for nobody but God. So when I walk in rooms, I'm not trying to be first, second, or last. I'm trying to go in on my assignment. And can I walk out to that to be my destiny? Yeah. And well, so when you flip it like that, then you won't be... Um, trying to see if I make this decision, is it going to be a rejection? Yeah, thanks. Hey, you you can stay on, Pete. And uh, Brent wants to ask a, a question here on video. So enable Brent right now. So my question for you is, is, is we both know who is in control that day. And lots of things happened in those minutes that probably surprised you out of all of the things that surprised you, what was the one that surprised you the most? Well, let me say on this that conversation where I'm talking, you can say his name, his name is God. Okay. <laughs> That's who surprised me the most. <laughs> and the reason why was because I didn't know how um, clearly I could hear from him. I had, um, for the first time could talk to him, but it was important for me to listen and to make sure that nobody interrupted the line. So you know how you go, you got the two way, right? And somebody can call you and you beep in, you got all this stuff going on, all the distractions. That was one day I said, Lord, do you see what I see? Because <laughs> this young man is walking to and fro in this room with me. And so when you listen to the 911 call, and you can see it on my website, which is AntoinetteTuff.com. When you hear the 911 um, message, right, the recording, that's the first one. Nobody heard I me mean, the second one. Nobody heard the first one. This young man had been in the room with me for a long time. He had shot in the room with me several times. And you just imagine you're in the room and the bullet is ricocheting in the, in the, in the air. And so you're hoping that not only does the bullet not hit you, but doesn't hit anybody else in the room, including him, right? And so when you see all that and everything is going on around you, you got to be able to know that am I hearing the instructions right? 
because every word that proceeded out of my mouth during that time could be life or death. Not just for me, but for everybody in the building because he had already tried to shoot at the kids. He had already said to me that we was already going to die. He even went so far as to put the gun here to try to kill himself several times. And I said to him, oh, no, baby, we ain't doing that today. No, we ain't dying today. <laughs> so when you see all that, you got to be able to know that it's important that we all go home safely. Yeah. Well, Antoinette, that's, um, so Scott asked a question a little bit ago, and this is a perfect time. He says, uh, he quotes you as to say, quotes you when you said, use judgment, don't pass judgment. Mm -hmm. He says, that's so well said. Um, how do we influence our workplace, the current political system, where, you know, even when you disagree with somebody, um, how do we, how do we listen and, and stop the judgment? Um, and he ends with kind of a question and a commentary. Um, it seems like society is rife with vitriol and anger and hate instead of love and compassion and so forth. Um, so I guess the question is, how do we move from judgment um, to, to, to stopping that, you know, stop ourselves from passing judgment? Well, one thing I would say is that, that I teach within my T tags, right? So one of the things that I teach with them are T-TAGs, and T-TAG stands for Tough Tactic Action Game Plan, right? And one of the things that I teach in there is called Hi, My Name Is. And how many times have you gone to work or, you know, you're in your cubicle or you're in your office and you just only know you? How many of you all that are actually here now can say that I know somebody that's down the hallway and around the corner for me. You know their name, you know all about them. So if they came up to you and something happened, you'd be able to say, oh, Johnny's not right today or Susan's not right today. Majority of the time, what we do is we get in our little circle and we only know who we know within that circle. So it may be somebody that's sitting next to you, somebody that's in the next door to you. And so how my name is, is getting outside of your comfort zone, being your authentic self, to be able to say that, hi, my name is, and introducing yourself. And that's what gets to be able to have psychological safe working environments. And the reason why that is, is because now you are no longer in competition with me. We are now on the team together. And so I can be able to say to you, I'm having some struggle here, I'm not for sure what to do. Can you help me? And the reason why you can do that is because I built a relationship with you. And you know my name beyond knowing my name on the roster. And so that's one of the things that we wound up doing within my T-Tags. And so, yes, you're right. We don't have safe work environments and it doesn't seem like it's a place that you can be able to show compassion. But how many of us right now are showing compassion? You know, I know for me, we're having an actual tomorrow, we're having with my community an actual another webinar just like this that we're talking about compassion. Yeah. And so I'm bringing everybody in to be able to have a conversation on it. And how do you do that? And how do you be able to show compassion in the midst of all of this? How many of us just went to our next door neighbor who's a single mom and she didn't have any food? Do you know if she's single? Do you know if she has food? It's different ways to show compassion in what we're going through. That always have to be in the workplace. Yeah, yeah. Gavin, you raised your hand. So um, you want to jump in right now on this one. Um, you want to enable your camera? What do you got? My question is, so we're talking about compassion and I'm finding it hard 
um, you know, I'm looking at people online posting videos and saying, well, I know I've got COVID, I'm asymptomatic, I've been tested, you know, and they're like, I'm in Walmart or I'm shopping and I don't care if I give it to somebody, you should stay at home if you don't want to get it. I mean, it's like somebody walking in with a gun. I mean, you are, I mean, it's a death sentence to some people if they get this COVID. So how do you have compassion for those people that think, oh, well, I've got it, I'm asymptomatic, but I don't care about the rest of the population, you know? I'm trying to find a way to feel compassion or something because it just makes me angry. I mean, I'm like, those people should go to jail just like committing murder. Yeah. Can I, can I share on this? Can I share? And then, uh, Gavin, you know, it sounded like it was an open question. When I turn on the news, there's some people that I see on the news every day. It's tough to have compassion for. So Antoinette, um, it's hard, it's hard, but I, I did have a little aha moment this weekend. I was, um, you know, I see a lot of people that are posting these like beautiful, everybody's happy. We're doing virtual happy hour and they're like have these images on Zoom of like everybody toasting, you know, and, and we're all so good. I love my company and everybody's like, like a pep talk and everybody's like, well, keep your chin up. And it's like, we've conditioned ourselves to believe that we should always be happy and always keep like a positive um, outlook on life. And like for me, for a couple of weeks, I've really been struggling. Like I'm scared. And like the more someone says, keep your chin up, the more I get angry. I want to be like, I'm just, I need to be angry right now. Anyways, my daughter was over on, on Saturday and I wanted to have a talk with her about my oldest daughter about what was going on. Um, and I wanted to share some things that were going on for me, like why I'm scared. And, and I didn't know how to have that conversation with her. You know, how do you have a tough conversation? Everything's going to be okay in two months. Huh? You're going to be okay. Go back to school. And I shared and unexpectedly, as I started to share, I started to get really choked up with her and we're sitting in my breakfast room and I started to just bawl. I was like, I can't hold this anymore. And I just think my daughter, I don't know what I shared with her, but I just started to bawl. It was almost like an eruption. And I don't know for how long I shared, but she saw me like just let it all out. And I asked her what was coming up for her. And she had shared some things with me about how she, how she's trying to exist on the planet and her part. And she started to just totally cry. And she's the one of my daughters who's like, not the big crier. She kind of is a stern, tough girl, beautiful woman. And, uh, and she had cried and shared. Um, and I remember after that feeling like some of my anxiety went away. And it wasn't like just releasing the, the, the pressure valve, like this cathartic release. It was just around like being honest with our emotions. And Gavin, what I was thinking about was like, when we say show up authentically, you know, that doesn't mean just try to fake being happy. If we're, if we're feeling whatever it is, and if we're going to be authentic and be real about it, let's be real about it. Like whatever we're feeling in those moments. And that, and and maybe the other end of that is a level of, of fulfillment and purpose that comes from that, as opposed to always trying to be happy. So let me tell you all what I do that kind of helps me stay within my um, happy place. First thing I do is I get up and I start my day with prayer and um, meditation and all that. I start my day with that because I just believe that whatever you start with, you end with, right? I don't start my day with the news, trying to figure out what they're doing and all that, who them post a video and this and that and other. I don't feed myself that in the morning when I get up. 
I feed myself positively. So I get up and I read a morning um, book, if you can see that. So I go, I, I read things that's going to bring me light. Because right now we're in what seems to be um, darkness, right? You see people getting it. You see them on um, social media posting where they can't breathe and, and things that are going on. Every time you turn on the news, our president is saying something else. Local government is saying something else. They're shutting down things. So it seems to be when you're outside of your home, chaos is everywhere, right? So you got to have somewhere and some place that's going to make you stay within your zen and your happy place, right? The other thing is, I'm not sure if you all can see behind my wall, right? So this right here is my actual wall, right? So I write those things down. And so one of the things that I write down and I say over myself every day is that the right thoughts plus the right people in the right environment at the right time for the right reasons equal the right results. And so I say those things to myself and in my whole room and on all my walls, you see, I put words of affirmation, words of what I need, where am I going? What does that look like? So I have like a vision room. And so no matter where I'm at in this room, it gives me what I need for me. And so when I feel like I'm in that place, then I go into this in this room. And majority of my day, I'm in this room so I can see where I'm going, so I can see what I'm doing and, and all of that. The other thing that I do is say, according to God's word, I don't belong to you anymore. My family doesn't belong to you. My health doesn't belong to you. My ministry doesn't belong to you. My money doesn't belong to you. I'm with a different kingdom now and I'm and back off in Jesus' name. I gotta say things to myself that's going to get me in the place and keep me in a place of a happy place because we can all go about seeing what we see and what's going on and get in it so quickly yeah. and once you get it and it's hard to get out well, so what i would say to you galvin is that when you're looking at those things and you see people doing that i haven't seen a video where somebody went into one of the grocery stores and, and spit on the on the vegetables and they did all kind of craziness but you got to react yourself. What was going on with them before they did it? And if you go back and look at it, there was something going on prior to them doing that and they was not in a happy place. And so all you can do for them at that time is give them positive words because saying anything else, it's not going to make any difference. And you're going to always have happy people and people in our lives at all the time that are not going to be happy. But you make a decision, which one are you going to be? Yeah. I remember when I, we had a, you came to California and, and we had met and we were doing a session around your charity, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, about a year or two ago. Yep. And you had said, all right, Ben, come on, join me with one of my faith groups, one of my prayer sessions. I was like, okay, when is it? And you were like, uh, it's at six in the morning. I'm like, sweet, no problem. I get texts from you at three in the morning and you're like, Ben, where are you? And I'm like, well, you said this, this session, this prayer session, and it's not part of my you know, habit, but is it six in the morning? You said, yeah, East Coast time. And, and I asked you, like, do you, do you do that every day? And you said, yes. And when you travel to the West Coast, you woke up at probably 2.30 to, to do that session for other people at three in the morning. And I guess the reason that I thought about that is like, I feel like I'm lazy with things like, I need to put more reminders. 
you know, one of the things that I, I want to leave with them and I'll let, you know, you'll let, you know, share anything you want to share with the group. I only have one tattoo. I'm not a tattoo guy, but it's, you know, Abby and Zoe, my daughters on my right bicep. And, uh, I was never going to get a tattoo, but if I was going to get one, it's going to be my daughter's. And I always joked around and said, if I get a second tattoo on this arm, it's going to be your name. And the reason it's going to be your name is because what I want to do is like your vision board is always have reminders of the things that will make me better um, putting my, my values into practice. So when I have a tough situation and I don't see compassion in another person, I'm mad at them. I would say to myself, what would Antoinette Tuff do? What would Antoinette Tuff do? And to me, um, it's both literal and it's a metaphor for me. It's like, um, it would be to look at another person and say, that person is going through something. What are they going through? And to put myself in that vulnerable place where I'm not so in charge and I'm not trying to control the outcome because I don't think you ever tried to say, put your gun down, Michael Hill. In fact, but that's what we all do all the time. And to me, going back to that first question, how do we go first? Maybe going first, it resonates with me. It's, it, it means seeing another person and being okay to be vulnerable because what in life has ever been great that hasn't been vulnerable? Putting a man on the moon, you know, Martin Luther King standing in front of hundreds of thousands of people talking about the thing that he imagines, you know, getting through this virus and whatever, it's all vulnerable. So I, I love you and appreciate you immensely. Um, how about some final words? We have a couple more minutes. We're going to sign off at 15 after the hour. So um, what, you know, you have a forum here. What would you like the world to know? I would say this to you all is that no matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like, love you in this process. Some of you all have had some dreams that you've always wanted to do. Some of you have always said, you know, I, you know, I had this business in mind and I always wanted to do that. Focus on those things. Come back and look at those things and say, you know, I wrote this vision down or I wrote this, you know, this business plan down five years ago and I just had an opportunity to do it because I've been busy on my job. Go back and look at those things. Go back and look at those things of, you know, I got an elderly lady that's right beside me who doesn't have food and she needs a loaf of bread. Look at those things, how you can support and help each other and all of that. Stop watching the news so much. Don't allow yourself to get in that downward spiral. This is a time now that's not going to last always. Go back and, like I say, T-tag somebody. Show somebody some tough love with a good old action game plan so that they can be able to know that you love them unconditionally. And then only that, if you're at home, because everybody is, right? <laughs> Go back and be able to love on your family. Go back and share some time with your kids and your wife and those that are in your home that loves you unconditionally and allow them to see just how much you appreciate that. Yes. Right. That's what we're going to do today. T-tag somebody. 